Now, this, this week is called exit strategy. There's a reason why it's called exit strategy, because the actual word exodus means exit. It also means departure. Now, the reason why we're studying this book is because exodus is really important for us to understand, even though it happened thousands of years ago. We're talking more than 2,000 years ago. Jesus was around 2,000 year years ago. This is before Jesus. This is long before him. So why does this book matter? And I just want to read to you from the New Testament why an Old Testament book like Exodus matters to us. This is in 1 Corinthians 10. It talks about all these things that happened to God's people, the Israelites, in the book of Exodus. It talks about them grumbling. It talks about them walking through the desert. It talks about them, their leader Moses, we'll get to him next week, striking a rock and uh, making water come out of it and doing all these other things, right? And it says at the end of it, these things happen to them, to the people in the Bible in Exodus, to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So this is what it means, is that everything that happens in the book of Exodus is meant to be an example or a signpost of things that are happening in our life right now. And hopefully what you will see is that even though this book is thousands of years old, it tells a story, a true story of thousands of years ago, you'll see how there are things that apply to your lives today in 2023. That's the goal. That's the hope. All right. Sometimes we get a little interactive. Who thinks they know something that has to do with an exit strategy that happens monthly to, wow, Enoch, I didn't even get to finish. Go ahead, Enoch. What is it that happens monthly and has to do with an exit strategy? Fire drill. Man, Enoch, way to go, man. You didn't, you didn't hit it on the birthday order, but man, you, you nailed this one. An exit strategy. Every month, if you go to a school, if you're in a school building, they, by law, are required to do a fire drill. And it's, it's funny because I, I work here in this building and we have to participate in the fire drills. And there's a certain somebody on our church staff who I will rem- we will remain nameless. Dennis was pointing and you just missed it, but I saw Dennis. There's a certain person on our church staff who refuses to step outside when there's a fire drill. That person will remain nameless. If you really want to press on, on it, um, we can talk about it later. But there's a certain person who works at the church who will not come outside for fire drill. Now, you may think, like, oh, this is so boring. Why do they do this every month? And why do they always happen to find the windiest, coldest month in the, in the winter months when they do fire drills? It's like if there's a windy day in January, that's when the fire drill happens. And you guys all walk out there, and you're shivering. You become icicles, and it's terrible. Or it's blazing hot, and it, it feels like you just stepped out into an oven for a fire drill. Am I right? Yes. Facts. Okay, so I got some people who are with me on this. Okay, so the, the reason they do this is, is what? Because in an emergency, you got to know where to go if something bad were to happen. So it's almost like we call it muscle memory. You just know that when everything's going crazy, like if this building filled with smoke and there were fires, I mean, you would start to go into panic stations. And so if that happens, you've got to, something's got to click. It's got to be instinctual. I know that your fire exit, by the way, is going to be right out that door, and you're going to keep going, and there's an exit there, okay? That's, that's your quickest way out of this room if it all goes sideways, okay? Just to let you know. But that's why we do fire drills, right? I think in the same way, as we, as we look at the first chapter of Exodus tonight, what I hope that you see is that there is a key element as a Christian. If you, if you are a believer in Jesus, there is a way to get away from the world in terms of the world tempting you. And there's a way to get away from the world in terms of the world trying to steer you away from Christ, which the world tries to do. 
And so there's an exit strategy, and there's a key element that we're going to talk about in chapter 1 of Exodus that helps us see how do we get away from the world when it is chasing after us and trying to get us to disobey Christ. Because here's the reality, is that we are in the world all the time. We're not of it, but we're in it. So how do we stay away from it or get out of it to the point where we can maintain our faith when we're stuck in the world? So we're going to talk about that. All right. Exodus chapter 1. Like I said, the verses are on the screen. We're going to take chunks at a time. I'm going to read because there's a lot, a lot of verses. And we're going to get through all, all of these verses tonight. Here's what it says. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. All right, so I'm, I read these verses to you because I want to just set up what we call the context really quickly for you. Most of you guys know this is the second book of the Bible, and it directly links with Genesis, okay? So there's a lot of things that just happened in those very first seven verses that are done so that you as a reader would know what is happening is a direct connection, and it picks right up. This is a continuing story from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, okay? Here's a couple things that you can know. Genesis 46, Joseph brought his family to Egypt, okay? So Joseph brings his family to Egypt because there is a great famine in the land, and Joseph had risen in the ranks of Egypt to as a second in command under the Pharaoh, and so he brings his family to Egypt for safety. Also, one of the things that you'll notice is that it says that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. Their numbers grew exceedingly. This is another connection to Genesis. All right? Back in Genesis 15, Gen or Jesus, or excuse me, God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be greater than the amount of stars in the sky. So his, his descendants, people that would come from his family, would outnumber the stars in the sky. That promise is starting to be fulfilled in Exodus chapter 1. If you read further into the book, in chapter 12, verse 37, you figure out that this group of 70 that it started with, with Joseph's family, has grown to maybe, probably, more than 2 million people. So in a very short amount of time, a group of 70 grew to 2 million that's the idea that this book is trying to connect to you, that this is a continuation from Genesis to Exodus, and here's where we are. Now, something changes after that. We'll go back. Verse 8 now. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war, war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities in Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. 
In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All right, so we're going to pause here again. So, so here's what you have, right? This group of people, God's people, the Israelites, promised to Abraham have grown and they've swelled in number in a foreign land. This is not where they belong, okay? God sent them to Egypt out of the foreign land. We're going to get to that in a second. So Joseph is there. The people settle. They, they multiply. Generations pass. Hundreds of years pass. And what happens is, is that all the things that Joseph had done in Egypt are forgotten by the Egyptian people, specifically by the king, the pharaoh. And so what happens is a new king arises. He does not know Joseph. He doesn't really care what Joseph did. And so he sees God's people as a problem because they have grown in number. This, this is where this becomes a little bit one of those things that we have to recognize that sometimes this is where the old gives us a picture of what's happening now. This is where it's a signpost type thing. The new king does not know Joseph. And for a time, God's people, the Jewish people, were helpful to the Egyptians, right? If you know the story in Genesis, Joseph saved the Egyptians from a famine because he had these dreams that God had given him. That saved Egypt. It was a safe place for God's people to, to grow and to multiply. But for that time, they were useful. This new king doesn't see them as useful. In fact, this new king fears them. You'll see fear is a, is a word that we're going to focus on a lot in this passage because it says that they feared that they would combine with other enemies and fight against them. They feared that they would escape from the land. They feared that they could overtake them. This is, this is what happened back then, but it's a signpost to what happens nowadays. Guys, there, there's going to be times, and you could, if you study our country's history, there's times where Christians, people who follow Jesus, are seen as useful and good. Their ideas are welcomed. They seem to be good things for our society and to our culture and to our country. But then all of a sudden, when we are not useful, when Christians are not useful to the world anymore, it quickly turns from using them to then spinning to being afraid of them. And just like the Egyptians were afraid of God's people, you can see how nowadays people fear when God's people show up because they're afraid that they will change their way of living. Right? Like if... The Egyptians were overthrown by the, the Jews grabbing a hold of other, other nations and fighting against the Egyptians. They would overflow the Egyptian way of life. You could see that if, if believers start to dwell in our land and multiply, and there's a lot more Christians than there are other people, then you could see how people who are in positions of authority or like their sinful lifestyles will get uncomfortable because then all of a sudden, believers start to change the way that they live and disrupt what they like. There's also a fear that God's people will depart. See, there is still one more use for them. And, and even at the beginning of Exodus, a book that is all about really when the people leave Egypt, they're already afraid that they will escape from the land. That is a fear that the Egyptians have for God's people. They might escape from the land. They don't want that. Now, in all of this, there's something that happens here. God's people are forgotten. The, the Egyptians forget why they even had God's people there in the first place. And quite frankly, they don't care. They just want to get rid of them. They don't want them to be in great number. They want to use them, but they don't really want them to outnumber them. 
What's interesting about this, and you saw in the passage that we read that they were dealt with ruthlessly. They were made to be slaves in the field. They were made to work. They were put heavy burdens on them. All these things happen. You can see that these things are not good for God's people. But what's interesting is that God knew and God actually planned for this to happen. So I'm going to connect you back to Genesis for, Genesis for a second. Genesis 15, 13. When the Lord spoke to Abraham, he said, Know for certain that your offspring, the people who come from you, those who number the stars, outnumber the stars, right? They will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. I find this really interesting that before the Jewish people get to Egypt, God has already told Abraham, your people are going to go to a foreign land and they're going to be afflicted. They're going to be enslaved. They're going to be put into pain for 400 years. That's a long time. And yet this is all a part of God's plan. So God knows that they are going to suffer for a long period of time. For you guys, you may not have experienced great amounts of suffering to this point in your life. But if you have, or when you do, this passage is here to acknowledge to you that God planned and even knew that this would happen. For a purpose that is beyond what we may understand. But he knows that this is going to happen. Now, at the same time, later in Genesis, he makes another promise to the people of Israel who go down to Egypt. Listen to what he says in Genesis 46. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, here's what he's saying. You're going to go down. He's talking to Jacob here, and he's saying Jacob, who's, by the way, his name got changed to Israel, which is the name of the nation of God's people, right? You're tracking with that? Okay. He says, you're going to go down to Egypt, but don't be, don't be fearful. You're going to go down there, but when you go down, I'll go with you to wherever that takes you. As low as that may take you, I will go with you. And then I will bring you back up. So, so on your notes, Aiden put together for you guys tonight, the first thing I want you to know, there are three central truths that we want to walk away with tonight. Here's the first one. Number one, God does not shield his people from hard times, but he promises to be with them no matter what happens. You can see that in this story. God has said God's people are going to be oppressed for 400 years, but don't worry because I'm going to go with you down into that oppression. God doesn't promise you not to allow difficult things to happen. He acknowledges that that will happen. And, and here's the reality. Difficult things happen because there's bad stuff or sin in our world. And so sin in our world is a part of our experience as people. But God works even in sinful experiences and he works around them and through them and uses them for his purposes in your life. And what he promises you is that no matter what happens in hard times, he will be with you. Here's the second one I want you to see and we're going to talk about this one next. Number two is God's plans can't be thwarted or stopped. God's plans can't be stopped. Here's where this is interesting, okay? In the passage that we read in verses 8 through 14, listen to what the Pharaoh thinks about doing. He says, let us deal shrewdly with them. That word shrewdly is let's think wisely. Let's try to outsmart them. 
This is what people do all the time with, with what God's doing, right? They think that they can outsmart or hide from God or they can kind of find a loophole in whatever God has said. They think that there's a way to do that. That's been happening for thousands upon thousands of years. It's, it's part of our sin nature, really, is that we think we can figure out a way to outsmart God. And so this is what the Pharaoh does. He's like, well, let's deal shrewdly with them. We'll, we'll outsmart them so lest they multiply. So here's how we'll stop them from multiplying. We're going to set taskmasters over them, and we're going to send them to these other cities away from where they are now so they can't be with their family all the time, and then we're going to make them do really hard labor. Here, here's what, if you think about this for a second, I mean, you may not think this deeply about it, but just realize they don't have fast food joints back then, right? They don't even have microwave ovens. So the hot pocket isn't really an option. So here's how these people eat. They've got to farm. They've got to get the actual grain and mash it up and then bake it into bread. They've, if they want to eat meat, they have to go raise an animal, slaughter it, and then they've got to cook it. They've got to do a lot of work. There's not a grocery store on the way from Pithom or Ramses back to where they live, right? So, so here's the strategy. Let's send all the people out to work far from where they live. Let's exhaust them, and maybe we'll kill them off that way with hard labor. It's a strategy, right? It's kind of underhanded. He goes on. Let's do this. Let's ruthlessly deal with them as they work as slaves. Let's make their lives bitter with hard service. Let's make it so miserable for them in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And if they worked ruthlessly, they made them work as slaves. The idea here is let's make their lives so miserable that they won't continue to grow. This is a tactic that the world tries to throw at you as a believer now, that Satan wants to throw at your life now if you're a believer in Christ. He wants to make your life so miserable, make you work so hard, exhaust you to the point where you don't feel like growing spiritually. Where you just go, oh, this is just too tough, man. Like, I, I can't continue to pursue holiness. I can't continue to pray. I can't continue to read my Bible. I can't continue to try to live like Jesus because this world right now is just throwing too much at me. This is a tactic that the world is using all the time. And you see it in real life right here that the Pharaoh is trying to do this. He's trying to kill off God's people. Let's go even further. This gets even darker. Okay, so you thought he was shrewd. Then he sees that it doesn't work. And then he goes to his next option. Here's verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. So, so his next option is, if we can't kill them with hard labor and keeping them away from their families while they work, we'll kill the babies. That, that's what it says right here, right? Now, this is, this is in Scripture. It's dark, and it, it is a reality of what, was, what he said he was designed to do. Now, here's why I think this is, this is crazy. You think about this. He chooses two Hebrew Jewish midwives. And he tells them, when you see or when you hear of a pregnant Jewish woman, if it's a boy, kill it at the moment of birth. Now, there are so many things, and, and we, we already kind of promoted it, but guys, think about in our world today, right? A culture of death that we have in our world with abortion and all those things. It's not a political statement. This is a God statement. I'm just saying, think about it's kind of the same idea, right? If you can kill people who are innocent, you can stop 
human flourishing. You can stop God's good work. You can stop what God has designed to work. That's why abortion is so wicked and why it needs to stop. It's not a Republican-Democrat thing. It is just a reality of this, is, this has been happening to God's people and to the innocents for so long. But, but here, here's the idea. Kill, the, kill them, right? Use these midwives to do that. So it continues on. Kill the male children that, and don't let, or sorry, but the midwives, we'll pick up in verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So this probably happened for years, but these midwives said, you know what? We don't fear the Pharaoh. We, we fear God more. We know that if, if he finds out that we're not carrying out his task, he could kill us. He could execute us. But, but that is nothing compared to if we were to disobey the Lord and what God could do to us in eternity. And so we would much rather face the wrath of Pharaoh than the wrath of God. They feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh. Hold on to that verse because that's what we're going to come back to. Then they were summoned to the Pharaoh. Why have you done this? Let the male children live, he asked. Verse 19, the midwife said to the Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the, he- the midwife comes to them. So, so a lot of people have trouble with this because it sounds like they just lied. And I was reading a lot about this. Here's what a lot of commentators actually think is happening. They're not saying that, though, there's a difference between Egyptian women and Hebrew women. He- what they're saying is, is that they're saying that Hebrew women seem to be very involved in the birth of their child, whereas Egyptian women were just like, eh, it's not that big a deal. But Hebrew women valued their children. And they had a definitive look in the birth of their child. They cared so much. So what the midwives did, because they were Hebrews as well, they would say to them, hey, looks like you're pregnant. Don't call for a midwife right away. Don't call for help when you're about to give birth right away. Give it some time. And then by the time we get there, if you have taken care of it and you have had the child already, oh well, we can't execute what Pharaoh told us to do. So these two women found a way to not obey Pharaoh, but to stay truthful to the Lord and do what the Lord said. And then it says this, so God dwelt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. I think this is so fascinating. This goes back to our second point, that you can't stop God's plan. Pharaoh sought to kill all the men, all the boys. So two women figured out a way to keep them alive. And on top of that, when they figured out how to keep them alive, God blessed them with families of their own. If you're you're tracking with this, Two people were sent to stop male from being born. Those two people, because they feared the Lord, ended up having children of their own. You see, you see how God, you can't stop what God's going to do. Pharaoh, governments, other people, people in your life that seem larger than life, bullies or whatever, they can't stop what God's trying to do in your life. Nobody can stop God's plan. God is bigger, and he is always in control of every single situation, no matter how dark and and depressing it is or how violent it is, like it was here. At the very end, you get what happens at the end. It says, Pharaoh comes to this conclusion. Well, I can't trust these Hebrew women because they figured out a loophole, and they, they worked around it. So he says in verse 22, 
every son that is born. He says to his people, all the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews, cast them into the Nile River. Literally throw that baby into the Nile River, but let every daughter live. Now this is, this is gruesome. This, this is a big word if you want to look it up later if you don't know it, but it's called genocide. I mean, literally, that, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to eliminate a people group from the earth. That, that is what he is trying to do in that, in that passage in verse 22 at the end. But even he can't stop what God is trying to accomplish. And this brings me to the third point, and we'll, we'll be done. The third point is, God doesn't change, but people do. See, the Pharaoh forgot about Joseph. And the Jews, and the way that they saw the Jewish people changed. The Jewish people were living in a relative comfortable place for a time while Joseph was in Egypt. And even were allowed to grow. And so there was a comfort, right, that they lived and experienced in Egypt. But that was taken away from them. Because all of a sudden, when they forgot about God's people, guess what happened? They started to oppress them, make them toil. They were ruthless with them. And so now, the circumstances had changed, right? So people have changed. People's circumstances have changed. The way that people treated them have changed. All of this changed, and yet there is one consistent constant in all that. God did not change. And you can see the proof of that because God kept his promises that he made in Genesis to the people, right? All those promises at the beginning are still taking place in Exodus. And God's still allowing his people to multiply even at the greatest attempt of human people to stop them from flourishing. So if God doesn't change, but people do, this is where we land with the final thing. This is your exit strategy when I said the world is trying to chase after you and getting you to get away from your faith in Christ. Just like those two Hebrew midwives. We should fear God, not man. You should fear God because he does not change. You should not fear man because man changes. Man is changeable. Man is short in their strength. Man is finite or means that they have an end. So we should fear God, not men. Just like those two women they say, it says to them that they feared God, not the Pharaoh. And here's an interesting point. This is just a fun fact. That in the first chapter, other than Joseph, who's dead in Genesis now, the only people in the first chapter of Exodus that we actually understand or know their names are the two Hebrew women. We don't even know which Pharaoh this was. The Pharaoh's not named. Nobody else is named other than the two women. Why? The reason is, is because they are the primary point of chapter one their view of god over man is the primary thing we are to see in in exodus chapter one that we are not to fear god or sorry we are to fear god not fear men here's i'm gonna give you a couple verses to end with acts 4 19 to 20 this happened in the new testament after Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter and John were brought in front of a council. They are literally being put on trial. They are about to be thrown in prison. And you got to remember, the people who put them on trial are the same people that just murdered Jesus. So these guys have a track record of killing people if they don't like what you say. So they're put on trial. And here's what Peter and John answered to them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
Here's what, it's a clunky way in English. Here's what, I'll just summarize it for you. What they're saying is, we can't help but tell of the goodness of Jesus. We can't help but do that. So whether what we're doing is right or wrong in your eyes, you could be the judge of what you think is right or wrong, but what we know is right is Jesus has risen from the dead, he has saved us from our sin, and we're going to tell people about it. Whatever punishment you may bring our way, we're going to do that. Later on, Acts 5.29, next chapter. After they are in prison, they are literally imprisoned after they make that statement in chapter 4, Peter and the apostles stand again before this same council of people and says, no matter what, we have to obey God rather than men. We've got to obey God rather than men. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, I, I keep this verse, actually it's my, scr- or my wallpaper on my laptop, it's, it keeps me grounded, it helps me remember. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God. Why? Because God tests our hearts. Here's why this is such, this is the key element. This is your exit strategy. If, if you struggle with maintaining your testimony or, or walking with Christ because everybody around you is trying to pull you away from that or you succumb to just the talk about everybody else around you doesn't talk the way that you think they should or they're not very wholesome in their talk or they're not uplifting in terms of talking about Christ in the way or they're not pointing other people to Jesus, right? He, here's the key. We should not fear men. We, we too often talk because we want to be accepted by men. We, we should not care so much about their acceptance, but more, more importantly, seek out God's acceptance of you. And seek that your life reflects what he wants from you, not what other people expect from you. Listen, so many of you guys, it, it, it's easy for you to talk in such a way or to act in such a way that is approved by your peers, by your friends, so that you're seen as acceptable or cool or you're seen as somebody that they think is funny. But at the expense, sometimes what we do is we do that at the expense of following in the way that Jesus would have us act or speaking in the way that Jesus would have us speak. Don't fear what God, man can do to you. Fear what God can do, Jesus said. And out of that fear, that respect, and that love for him, walk with him. Be like him around other people. That's what drove those two Hebrew women to disobey the most powerful man on the planet at that point. Egypt was the world's empire at that moment. And they defied a direct order from him and said, no, we're not going to listen to you. Because in the grand scheme of things, your reign comes to an end. We're going to go to the... We're going to bow to the one king whose reign never ends. Guys, it's the same way for us today. I said before, Exodus was just a signpost in the past to what's happening now. Don't, don't fear what people can do to you. Don't be afraid to speak about Jesus. Don't be afraid to speak truth. Because in the end, they can't take away from you what God has already protected. You have eternal life in Christ. That can't be taken. If you're a believer in Christ, that cannot be shaken. So don't let your fear of men drive you from acting a way that God doesn't want you to act. I think for so many of us, we want to please people or be seen as cool or whatever, and that drives how we act and we think. And that's why I think this is your, if you're looking for a fire drill type thing in your life spiritually, this is what you can practice. Fear God, not man. And that will help you get away from always bending to whatever the world wants.
And that's what we want for you guys is to pursue Christ, pursue his way of living, because it's the way that leads to joy and holiness. All right, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much uh, for this time together. We thank you for all these guys and girls for being here. Lord, we just ask you to continue to remind us of your goodness, that you don't change, and that people do. And for that reason alone, you are to be feared. But people are just people. We don't have to fear them. We don't have to change the way that we live so that they accept us. We should change the way that we live so that you accept us. And Lord, the only thing that we could do to be accepted by you is by placing our faith in Christ and giving our, our, our lives to him, surrendering our lives to him to be the Lord of our life. So, Lord, I just pray that we would continue to daily surrender our lives to him. We would not walk in the way that the world walks. And even when the world tries to shake our circumstances or make it difficult, Lord, that we would choose to follow you. God, we just thank you for this time. We just pray that these students be encouraged. They'd be given a way to get away from the things of this world that try to drag them down. And Lord, they would see that you are the ultimate judge, the only one who makes us fear. And we have to, we have to know that your love for us is so great and your forgiveness is so real that you are the best one to be the judge over our lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name.